Gracious Heavenly Father, God, God, thank you for today. God, thank you for each and every one that is here this evening. Lord, they're sacrificing their time away from their family. They're sacrificing time to learn more about you and how to love your people. Lord, ask a blessing upon each and every one here and that their time this evening is one that will draw them not only closer to you, but how to love the broken. In your precious son, Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you look at your notes, you can pretty much see I provided like a mini novel for you. We're not going to be going over all of this this evening. In fact, we're probably not going to be going over most of it. Why? Because you guys are all bright and you can read. So we're, you're gonna, we're going to go over some of it, but not all of it. So don't stress out. We're not staying here till one in the morning. But we're, what we're going to do this evening is we're going to have a conversation about addictions. Okay, but before we get into... Um, my lecture. I just want to ask a few of you your name and why you're here for this particular topic on addictions. Because most times when we talk about addictions or addiction ministries, we usually have them on a Monday night when no one else in the church can see who's coming. I started a, a recovery ministry here, a recovery ministry group at my church, and we had about 800 people. And they made the mistake of making it on a Wednesday night at 6 o'clock when everyone else was having their quote-unquote life groups. And for six months, my wife and I showed up every single Wednesday to lead this biblical wisdom group on addictions. Does anyone want to take a guess how many people showed up in six months? Zero? You're close. It was one. And it was one because we had a guest speaker the first week. And aside from that, for six months, my wife and I diligently showed up every Wednesday and not a single person came. And the reason is because there's this thing called shame and guilt. Especially, I'm, I'm from Hawaii, as you can tell with my Aloha shirt. I served in, you say, oh yeah, he's from Hawaii. I, I actually te- text Keith, can I wear an Aloha shirt? And he said, absolutely. So I'm, I'm wearing my Aloha shirt. I also lived in California for six years. I served in various ministry capacities around sober living homes. I worked in treatment centers for, for six years in California. And it was amazing in California, whenever we did biblical wisdom groups, I'd have 50 show up day one. And then I moved here to Texas. And we don't talk about those things because of shame and guilt. And, and I'm so glad to see so many of you here this evening willing to invest in the broken, willing to invest in the unlovable, willing to invest in people that have been marginalized and swept under the rug for so long. And how do I know that? I know that because for 13 years I was an idiot, and for 13 years I lived a life that was not pleasing to God. I was born and raised in the church, but when I turned 17, I just I graduated from high school and I was off to the races. And for 13 years I was a drug addict. 13 years I was an alcoholic. At least that's what I was told by the world. And I'm here to tell you that if I can get sober and if I can live a life that brings God praise, glory, and honor, the people that you want to minister to have hope, but that hope has to be placed in Christ. Okay? So that was just a quick little background on on why I'm here. Right? I'm super happy, super stoked to to invest in those who want to help the broken. But just real quick, I want to know from a few of you, just your name. I'm not going to remember everyone's name. There's too many of you. Couple names and why you're here. So we're going to start with this young woman right here. What is your name and why are you here this evening? Um, my name is Nancy, and um, I'm here uh, because uh, our son uh, next month will be 15 years clean awesome. from a meth, meth addiction, and um, he actually tried to kill himself three times. 
Uh, one of those times we were in the emergency room while they pumped his stomach. Mm. Um, not a thrilling experience yeah. for any parent um, yeah. to go through. And if I can help um, any person going through the addiction or any parent who has a child going through it or the parent going through it, I can help them in any way I, I want to be able and be equipped to do that. Sure. Thank you so much, Nancy. And I'll remember your name because that was my grandmother's name. So if I, you will for sure be memorized this evening. Okay. And I also want to throw in one more thing. What do you expect to learn? What are your expectations from, from our, our time this evening? So we're going to go with this other young lady sitting next to Nancy. Your name is? I'm Lisa. Lisa. Okay. Following husband around. So we are going to put all the pressure on Mr. Your name, sir? Uh, Kip. Kip. Kip, why, uh, why are you here? To learn um, about how to counsel addicts in the, in the Bible. Okay, what are some expectations tonight? Um, that I'll learn those things. Learn those things. <laughs> no, to get my worldview more of a biblical view in approaching addiction. Okay. Usually when I start a class and we don't have enough time, I will go through the entire class, ask everyone their name, why they're here, <clears throat> and what do they expect to learn. There's a reason I do that. One is because I want to know who I'm going to be working with for the next couple hours. But second, then I ask you guys, those that are in attendance, we probably get to this young man over here who's a IT guy who, for, who loves MacBooks. And what we notice is by the time we would probably get to this lady at the end, and ask questions, you start, you stop tuning out after her story. Because you didn't see relevance in what Lisa said or what Kip said. And if you're going to work with addicts, which you, the number one skill in addition to pointing them to the cross is you need to listen to them. No matter how boring or how many, how, how many times you've heard their story, you have to listen. I'll tell you why you have to listen. The reason why you have to listen is because their life is possibly in the balance. That's just the reality of this, this ministry. These, this people group that you guys have decided to invest your time in, you don't know if you're going to see them tomorrow. It is one of the few people groups that you don't know if that next phone call you're going to get working with that family is them calling to say, hey, they passed away in their sleep last night. And how do I know this? I've been working in the field of addictions now for 16 years. And there's too many names of of people that have lost their life that I can't even tell you all of their names. And the one thing that that I really want to just drill home with you guys is as you start to embark on this journey on ministering to the broken, I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care how tired you are. When they're coming to you and they're pouring out their heart Point them to the cross. Don't, don't, don't allow them to, to get away with unbiblical thinking, but you gotta listen to what they're saying. Because you might be the first person who's willing to sit with them. You might be the first person that's gonna point them to Jesus in the midst of their addiction. You might be the first person that is like, how are you doing today? And actually taking the time to say, hey, Kip, how are you doing today? And what do we usually do in church when we ask someone how you're doing? Hey, how are you doing today, Kip? <laughs> and we keep walking. But actually taking the time to say, hey, Kip, how are you doing today? Bad. Bad. 
Are you being serious? Are you being, okay. I was like, man, this just took a turn for the worse. We're gonna, we're actually gonna have to do some biblical counseling tonight. But actually taking the time to hear what Kip is going through. Actually taking the time and showing that he has value because for those of us who have struggled with substance abuse, or I've been told don't use substance abuse because that's a medical term, addictions or drunkenness. We'll go with drunkenness. For those of you who are, you're, you're mentioning those who have struggled with drunkenness. And they actually say, I'm having a bad day. A bad day for them is probably something that's going to kick them off possibly to a relapse, kick them off to suicidal ideations, kick them off to things that are not going to bring God praise, glory, and honor. And you might be that first biblical voice that they've ever had in their life. The first biblical voice that they've ever had in their life. And if you don't take them seriously and you just walk away, is that truly showing them the love of Christ? Right? And I'm going to be honest with y'all. Working with those who struggle with with drunkenness or, or an addiction is not easy. And I'll tell you why it's not easy. It's not easy because they're going to probably lie. Not probably. They're going to lie in the beginning. <laughs> Your name, sir, is? Mike. Mike, you've been smiling this whole time. Mike, why have you been smiling this whole time? Have you worked with addicts in the past? Yeah, it's not easy, is it? No. I'm currently teaching the Emotions and Addictions class at Southwestern, and one of my students said, you do a horrible job of recruiting us to do this ministry. <laughs> They're like, you're the worst recruiter. Because I, I don't sugarcoat it. I'll tell you exactly what it's going to look like. If you want to do this ministry in your church, you're not going to be doing it for the numbers. Because the numbers, the success rate is not the greatest. The numbers are definitely not the greatest if you're not pointing them to Jesus. The numbers are definitely not the greatest if you're not teaching them to spend time in the Word or pray or be of service. If you're just looking for behavior modification, I'm not your guy to teach you behavior modification. And I can do that really well. I did that really well in California. And what I realized is behavior modification can only go so far. It can only go so far. But if you show them who Jesus is, you show them about God's character. And you teach them about this word that we, do, we don't do a good job in our churches today. Teaching them about suffering. What suffering actually looks like. And that just because they had a bad day, like Kip didn't have a bad day, but if Kip had a bad day, it's not because that God hates him. It's not because God doesn't desire Kip to, to have fun today. It's because sometimes life just happens. But we, we don't teach that well how many of you have have had a hard day in the last month raise your hand everyone's had at least one hard day in the last month but for an addict or someone who struggles with drunkenness that one bad day most times if they're not taught like that's life they're going to use that as an excuse as a reason to go out and do all of the drugs and and all the drugs that are on page two of this mini novel I, i gave you guys so some of you are wondering, why did he go in such detail providing all the drugs out there? Well, one is to prove a point that this isn't even one-tenth of what's out there. I just covered the ones that you guys know about. The ones that are, that are um, knowledgeable. Marijuana, everyone knows about weed, everyone knows about opiates, everyone knows about fentanyl. You guys all know about fentanyl, right? Not fun. How many of you know that there's a new one out there called carfentanyl? Anyone heard of carfentanil? 
good. Well, not good, but carfentanil is no joke. So if you look at uh, grains of salt, five grains of salt is basically what fentanyl will take to kill you. Carfentanil is two grains of salt. Okay? It's here. And what the, the dealers are now doing is they're lacing every single possible drug with fentanyl. Whether it's cocaine, ecstasy, heroin, anything, they're lacing it. And I'll tell you why. Because it makes money. What you need to understand is we're no longer, for those of us who might have white hair, there's a few of us here, and or who still have hair, there's even less of us. <laughs> right? Drugs were, were grown in a field somewhere. What you need to understand now, drugs are now being made in labs. So it used to take a hundred acres to produce a million dollars or two million dollars now. They can do a million dollars in that corner. So drugs are changing. And and you're like, you're not giving us hope. (laughs) I'm here to tell you the reality of things. If you're looking... To take away the drugs, it's not going to happen. We, we've been fighting the war on drugs for the last 30-something years. I remember, who remembers the egg in the frying pan? This is your brain on drugs. Oh, yeah, you remember that one. This is, I'm not political at all. I just want to ask a question. We've been fighting the war on drugs for the last almost 40 years. We spent trillions of dollars on the war on drugs. Who's winning? Have we been successful in the war on drugs? And I'll tell you why we have not been successful in the war on drugs. is because we've approached it from the wrong perspective. The war on drugs has never talked about Jesus. The war on drugs has never talked about sanctification or God's sovereignty. It's never talked about sin, repentance, redemption, restoration. We've approached it wrong. We, we, and Keith probably has taught you guys how we have abdicated soul care for so long, right? That this is advanced track. So obviously in fundamentals, you guys have already gone over that we have done a poor job caring for people. A very poor job caring for people. And now we're reaping what we've sowed. We have a nation today that doesn't turn to God. They turn to psychology or they turn to medication or they turn to everything but Jesus. In one of my classes, I argue that psychology is the newest religion. Who's my youngest person in here? You look pretty young in the green shirt. How old are you, sir? 18. 18. I'm pretty sure he's the youngest because ACBC doesn't work with anyone under the age of 18. Your name was? Justin. Justin. Justin, for most of your friends, if they have a problem, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, what is their default? Is their default to come to find their faith and hope in Christ? Or their faith and hope in a therapist. That's awesome. That's the right answer. Who else has? I. You just did not prove what I was trying to say. <laughs> yes, sir. Do you have someone who knows under around eighteen or under the age of twenty-five? Yeah, I worked at McMurray University as director of counseling. Okay. And their hope was in counseling. There you go. That's what I was looking. Your name. Their faith was placed in counseling, right? Not in Christ. Your name was? Jason. Jason. I'm going to talk to Jason a lot more than I'm going to talk to this guy over here. I'm just joking. <laughs> but we have psychologized, we have medicalized normal human behavior that people don't come to the cross. 
and especially with those who struggle with this particular topic of addictions. And I know that because I worked in the treatment field for a long time. I worked at a, a pretty expensive treatment center. And when they came in, they were given multiple options, not multiple, two options, the Christian track or the traditional track. And what I mean by the traditional track is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then the Christian track was Celebrate Recovery. Which was what? You repeat it out. Say, say Almost the same. Right? It's almost the same. And how do I know that? I wrote my dissertation on AA and Celebrate Recovery. And when I went to that treatment center, I asked the clinical director, where's Jesus? On your, on your flyer or whatever, on your website, you said this is the number one Christian facility in the United States. And I asked him, where's the Bible? And he said, that's what we go to on Friday night for Celebrate Recovery. And I said, that's not what I signed up for. And that's what you guys need to understand. When, when you're sending your loved ones away to some of these treatment centers or whatever, you have to ask this one question. Are they truly teaching them the word of God? And if the answer is no, find somewhere else. You're like, well, where is an, an opportunity for that? There is two facilities here I know in Texas. One is for women, one is for men. The men's one, you write this down, is Oak Hill Oak Ridge Discipleship House is in Austin, Texas. Now, if you go down to, to talk to Joshua Harris and I have his contact information, guess what? Unfortunately, they have this part of their curriculum. Celebrate recovery. And someone once asked me, why are you referring people to, to Oak Ridge um, Discipleship House if you know they have Celebrate Recovery? And I'll tell you why. Because they spend one hour in CR and they spend 12 hours in the Word of God. And I'm trying to convince Josh to, to totally drop the CR model, but they start their mornings at 5 in the morning with praise and worship. And they spend time in the Word, and Josh teaches them what the Word of God is. And I even ask Josh, Josh, why do you continue to use CR if you teach them 12 hours of Jesus? And he said, because that's how people come in. And it's up to you guys to change this narrative that God is more than enough. We need more people like you guys going out and telling your people God is more than enough. And then for the ladies, it's called Restoration Ranch. Jennifer Wakefield, they will be launching and opening in January. I'm actually on the board of directors, so I'm slightly biased. Jen will not have CR. Jen is just strictly the word of God. So there is hope. Restoration Ranch is also in Austin, Texas, right outside of Austin. And you're like, there's good places in Austin. Yes, there's good places in Austin. <laughs> I didn't know that until I moved here. I was like, oh, Austin's cool. And then I was like, oh, Austin's not cool. Um, but Jennifer is one of my doctoral students. Uh, she graduated with her doctorate. And um, her heart and passion is to help the broken and, and for women only. So I'm giving you some options. So, so now we're going to go back onto education. What do you guys know about drugs and alcohol? Just throw it out there. I'm not going to memorize everyone's name. We don't have the time, and I don't have the brain cells right now. So what do you guys know about drugs and alcohol? What are some questions you have about tonight? Like, why? Why? what do you want to know from me? Yes, sir. Uh, hold on, i got to get my question. Uh, so, like, you know, we talked about counseling if they're not saved in this mm-hmm. So, uh, rather... 
it's like addiction, not trusting in the Lord, or can you be trusting in the Lord and be addicted to these? Ah, that's a great question. So the question is, can you love Jesus and be quote unquote addicted to something? Yes. Because we all have something. And I call this a little black box that we keep in the corner of our, our closet that no one knows about. Okay, and this is, this is what, and this is where I realized that even Christians struggle. Okay, because for a long time I had that thought, I can't struggle with, with these life dominating sins if I truly love Jesus. Right? That's what I thought. And then I did a lecture, I did something similar to this at my church in Hawaii, and it was only people with no hair like Kip and white like, like Kip that was there. And that was the same, I'm sorry Kip, I'm gonna pick on you all night because I know your name. And, and that question came up. That, that same question came up. And then I asked them, everyone in attendance, and I'm asking every one of you here, how many of you drink coffee? <laughs> look at, so look around. Keep your hands up. Don't, don't pretend that I'm, I'm done picking on you. Alright? So look at all the people who drink coffee. And I asked them this question. I want you to give it up for 30 days. I got a lot of angry looks by a lot of older people. And they're like, well, that's not an addiction. But it is. You know how many people are willing to give up coffee for 30 days? Zero. Zero. So I did this in my class. I teach the Motions and Addictions class, and they just finished up their project. Their project from day one is each and every one of them have to give up something for 30 days. And I challenged them to give up the one thing that they don't want to give up. I had one girl, she was like, I'm going to give up water. And I'm like, no, you're not giving up water, you're going to die. I, I like being employed, I don't need to have anyone die. And I challenged my students for 30 days to give up something that they don't want to give up. So this, this past year, uh, this last, this semester, we had people give up YouTube. So this is only for the young people. My green shirt guy, what's your name again? Justin. Justin, Justin could you give up YouTube for 30 days? Probably not. Probably not. Right? YouTube was given up. Social media was given up. Justin's not on Facebook. Justin, are you on TikTok or Instagram? You're on no social media. Yes, you are. You're on YouTube. So YouTube, caffeine. Someone gave up meat for 30 days. One guy who's from Germany gave up soccer for 30 days. And what each and every one of them realizes is we all have something that we need to, need to lay at the feet of Christ on a daily basis. All of us do. In some way, shape, or form, we all have something that we need to lay at the feet of Christ every single day. And they just finished it. And I, I read one of their um, discussion posts, and one of the um, ladies, she was like, I, di- I never understood how someone could run to drugs and alcohol to the point that they gave up their child. Because she, she's fostering. She's fostering um, children right now. And she goes, I had zero compassion for the drug addict, zero compassion for those who drank alcohol. And she said, by doing this project, I realized that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, and so is that person. You need to change your attitude or, your, or how you view people who struggle with this life-dominating sin. You have to. Because if you don't, you're just going to look down on them. You're going to look, look, think that they're better than them. And the reality is we're all the same. We're all broken. Or just our brokenness comes out in different ways. Right? We, our, our brokenness just comes out in different ways. So while I may not struggle with cocaine and um, ecstasy as it got me into rehab, 
cocaine and ecstasy, I've been sober for 16 plus years. That's not my struggle anymore. But then I got judgy. I got super judgy. When I was in California, I had one CrossFit gym. I was in shape, not a shape round. Like I was literally in really good shape. And I started to judge pastors. Like, how can you, how can you talk about from the pulpit about, you know, people shouldn't drink and do alcohol and there you are eating your fried chicken every Sunday with whatever. And guess what I became when I came to Texas? So I want to eat fried chicken every Sunday. And, and as you can tell, I've gained a few pounds. But we all have something. And here's my challenge to each and every one of you. Okay, obviously you're here because, uh, like Nancy, right? She's here because her son has been sober for 15 years, but she wants to help others. But if I was to challenge each and every one of you to give up something for 30 days, okay, what would it be? You don't have to say it out loud. I really want you to think of what it would be for 30 days that you have to give up. Okay, and then let's, let's project two weeks out, two weeks later from now. And you relapse. I almost guarantee it won't cost any of you guys your lives. But for someone who, who struggles with addiction, specifically drugs or alcohol, and they relapse in two weeks, there is a good chance that they will die. And how do I know that? I, I, I have a... I have like a collage of people I've lost over the last 16 years. And it is a poignant reminder every year when I do this addictions class, I start with it on the wall and I show my students these 16 faces that they had a moment of stupidity and that their moment of stupidity cost them their life. The second, so the first thing is you need to listen, right? So we're talking about pointing people to cross. You've been already been through fundamentals. So if you're coming for an exegetical theological thing, then Keith has failed you, which I know he didn't. So I'm going to talk more about some of the practical things, y'all. Number one is listen. Number two, you have to be firm. And what I mean by being firm, you have to speak truth and love. Yes, sir. Did you? I do have a yes. Does scare tactics work? No. No, it's not about scaring. I'm just yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm not doing it for a, a scare tactic. I'm showing them the reality of the people group that they're going to be ministering to. Nah, not really. They, they are. For someone who, for someone who's battling with, you know, drugs and alcohol, they already know the risk, right? They know the risk because they've seen their friends. They've been to funerals. And, you know, I've been to so many funerals of, you know, 20-year-olds. And the saddest thing is I would see all of their friends come to the funeral high. Like their friend died from an overdose. But they would come to the funeral high. And I'm like, are you stupid? And yes, they're stupid. But but more so, they have an idol in their life, right? And that idol is the drugs and alcohol. I mean by an idol, something that they've elevated over being obedient to, to God or, or going to God with their suffering or their struggles. They, they've chosen to self-medicate, right? Because they don't want to deal with the anxiety. They don't want to deal with the depression. They don't want to deal with the sadness. They don't want to deal with all these normal human emotions, right? That unfortunately the, the world has put a diagnosis under. Well, you struggle with this. What you struggle with is 
the inability to lay everything at the feet of Christ. That's ultimately what we're struggling with. Whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, sadness, whatever it is, it's our, our inability to truly lay everything at the feet of Christ. Now, when, when I'm saying that you need to be firm and speak truth in love, I'm not coming from a place of superiority. I, I was horrible at it when I first started working with addicts. Right? I wanted everyone to be my friend. I, I didn't want to offend anyone. Okay, and, that, and now we're part of Team Offended even worse now in, in 2023. And this is when I started doing this was 2008. But even back then, I didn't want to offend people. But there was one night, it was a Tuesday night, I was at a, a church that's called The Effect in Southern California. And our ministry was, was helping those who struggle with substance abuse. And we had a girl in our community, her name was Vanessa. Now Vanessa's dad was also recovering. The dad had 20 something years at that point. But Vanessa struggled with a um, heroin addiction. She was an opiate addict. And Vanessa would come all the time. She, she was in pretty good. But then her sober living home that she was in shut down. And her sober living home shut down because they actually did it right. They didn't do it for money. It was through the church. And Pastor Jeff could just never kick out people if they couldn't pay their rent. Well, if you, if you rent a house and you don't collect rent, what eventually happens? You get evicted. You get kicked out. And, and Vanessa was part of that last group of girls. There were seven girls in that sober living home. And when, when that sober living home closed, six of them relapsed. I remember seeing Vanessa at a Tuesday night. Um, we did praise and worship. We prayed and, and sang worship songs for an hour. That was our ministry. You know, we, I'd sit at the front and pray over everyone who came in. And I remember seeing Vanessa that night. And um, she was as high as a kite. She was load, loaded. I mean, she was on so much stuff. Everyone knew that she was signing. I said, hey, Vanessa, how are you doing? And she said, hey, John, I'm doing good. I wish she said she was doing bad like Kip did. But she said, I'm doing good. I was like, you sure, Vanessa? She said, yeah, I'm good, John. Don't worry about it. That was the first chance I had to speak truth and love to Vanessa. Later on that night, we had a birthday party for for one of our mutual friends. It was um, at the Denny's um, in uh, Mission Viejo. I remember we were sitting in the third booth from the entrance, and it was 10 o'clock at night. They had just closed down, but they let us stay because it was my, my friend Karen's birthday, and Vanessa came in. She came in late, and once again, Vanessa was high as a kite. My second chance, Vanessa, how are you doing? John, I'm okay. Absolute lie. But I didn't want to offend her. I didn't want to call her out on anything. Then we ended about 11-ish. Vanessa disappeared into the bathroom. She came back out. I knew she was high. I knew she was high. Eyes pinned. Totally pinned. And before she left, I said, Hey, Vanessa, how are you doing? I'm good, John. Don't worry. Wednesday afternoon at at about 6 o'clock in the afternoon or 6 o'clock early evening, I got a phone call from Karen, the girl that the birthday party we were at. And she's just screaming, Vanessa's dead, Vanessa's dead, Vanessa's dead. Now, could me speaking truth and love stop Vanessa that night? Odds are probably not. Because Vanessa, after um, she left the party, she went to some guy's house. And um, he actually realized that she overdosed at 1 o'clock in the morning. But he was too afraid to call the cops. So he proceeded to clean his house, clean all the drugs out. And then he called the cops after everything was gone. 
It is because of Vanessa, though, that there is now a law in California that if you overdose, and you, even if you're the drug dealer, you can call 911 and they won't press charges against you. Speaking truth in love. Now I am absolutely brutally blunt. You want to talk about blunt? That's me 1,000%. If I see guys who are high, I, I tell them, I know you're high. How can I help you? See, the, the problem that we, we've had for so long is that when we encounter someone who is, who is high, that we just, we don't want to deal with them. We kick them to the curb. And we don't care for them. And how do I know that? Well, because when, when, I, this, when I finally broke down and, and called my parents at 2 in the morning saying, Mom, I'm a drug addict and I need help, she called my pastor, Pastor Robert. I love Pastor Robert. He did so much for me, so I'm not judging Pastor Robert. But when my mom called Pastor Robert, hey, what can we do for my son? He said, I don't know. So then they called the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention to talk to everyone in the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention. What can we do to help my son? And they said, we don't know. See, the reality is, is for so long, not just here in Texas, but but all across the nation, we say we want to help people who who are battling with with drug addiction, but we don't know how. And because we don't know how, we're afraid and we say, I don't know, that's someone else's problem. Can I borrow this whiteboard? Good. So what I'm going to show you guys now is a plan. Oops. I'm not good at this. I'm used to having a big whiteboard in back of me. And hopefully you guys on this side can see. I'm going to tell you how you can help someone who's struggling. Okay? So what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to walk you step by step. When that person calls you to say, I have a problem with drugs and alcohol, what you need to do and why. Don't worry, there's going to be some Jesus at the end. You're like, he's just teaching us practical stuff. And I'm teaching you practical stuff because you can't counsel a dead person. You can't counsel a dead person. I can give you... Yes, ma'am. It's pain pills. It's prescribed by a doctor. I'm being sarcastic, y'all. Um, I, I once had a pastor who said, I need you to help my son. I'm like, sure, how can I help? And he said, oh, he's, a, he's addicted to um, Vicodin because he had back surgery and he hasn't, gotten, he hasn't been able to get off it. And it's also your, drugs, your son's a drug addict. He goes, my son's not a drug addict. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, because it was given to him by a doctor. What we need to understand is a redefinition of what addiction actually is. And the, the true definition of addiction, it's a life-dominating sin. That's truly what it is. Now, I went on a little rabbit trail, right? I apologize. But to answer your question, there's nothing you can say to change your mom's mind. But I'll tell you, the best thing you can do for your mom, you're probably already doing, is keep praying. Keep praying for her. But when she calls you, your name, ma'am, is Melissa. Melissa. 
Melissa, I need money. I'm, I'm in pain. Mom, I'm not going to give you money. But here's an option to help you get off of it. And I should probably say, I don't need to get off of it. Uh, there, there's no other hope for me. And then that's when you say, but there is hope and there's hope in Christ. And she's finally say, but, but Christ can't help me with my pain. I've prayed to God to help me with my pain and the pain is still there. So God doesn't love me. And then that's when you go, no, mom, God does love you. But we need to get you the right help first. And is it going to be painful? Absolutely. Are you going to, is detox going to be brutally horrible? Yeah, detox is going to be horrible. But mom, I want to, I want to show you hope in Christ and I want to show you a, a new way of living life. A life free from bondage, a life free from having to um, ask your nephew to pick up drugs off the street. A life free from having to worry about how am I going to get my next fix? Right? And that can only be mom if you take this step. But mom, I'm going to walk with you. I'm not going to kick you to the curb. You know, and some families do that. Some families kick their loved one to the curb. When I worked in treatment, the worst time of year was between um, the last week of November and the first week of January. Worst time of the year. I, I worked in Southern California right by the beach. So what people used to do is they would tell them, these families are genius. I'm like, why? Well, I'm pretty devious and I don't even thought of this one. They, they would tell their loved one, hey, we're going to Kabul for the week. Pack your bags, you're going to Kabul. And on the drive down to Kabul, they'll drop them off at a treatment center. They'll kick them to the curb. But what you're going to do with your mom is like, mom, here, here's some hope. So it actually segues perfectly to what I'm about to say, right? So when someone is coming off of drugs and alcohol, there are two drugs and alcohol that they have to get a medical detox. Does anyone know what the two drugs are? Alcohol and one more. Nope. Benzodiazepines. There's two drugs that they have to do a medical detox because they can die, right? So from alcohol, it's called delirium tremens. And if they detox too quickly off of alcohol, they can have a heart attack and die. And I was like, that's a myth. And it's not a myth because that one guy's name is, we'll go with Andrew. Andrew's um, dad was so proud of him. Andrew had hit nine months sober. And the dad came to our sober living home and he said, hey, Andrew, I'm going to quit drinking. And we didn't really understand. I didn't know at the time about delirium tremens. The dad died of a heart attack on Monday. He was a drop-dead drunk for 30 years, and he just cut everything out, and he dropped dead of a heart attack. Okay, so there, there's two, two drugs that you have to get a medical detox. Benzodiazepines, so you're like, what's a benzodiazepine? Benzodiazepines are Xanax. Okay? Xanax and alcohol. Those are only two you have to do a detox. But as you, you're coming alongside, so you're like, should I do an intervention? I'm not a fan of interventions. I'll tell you why I'm not a fan of interventions. Interventions are for the family. It's for the family to feel good. But see, what you got to understand is the impetus for change or the reason why someone has to change is not because they're going to lose their house or because they're going to lose their wife or they're going to lose their kids or whatever. The reason why they need they want to get sober is because, and this is, I'm super busy. I take an answer. Why should I work with you? I'm looking for three answers. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm going to die or I want to know who Jesus is. If I hear a reason, it's like, I'm going to go to jail. Well, good, go to jail. I'm not going to work with you. I'm, I'm being, my, my, my time is valuable. And I've been doing this for so long. Unless the reason is because they realize they're gonna die. Or they want Jesus. Or they're sick and tired of living life this way. 
the underlying causality, underlying reason for them to get sober is not enough. And I'll tell you why. Because if they get, get in a fight with their wife, boom, they're out, they're drinking again. Or they actually lose their job, boom, they're out drinking again. Or they lose their kids, boom, they're out drinking again. The reason has to be they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're going to die or they want to know who Jesus is. That's my three reasons for helping someone. That's why I don't believe in interventions. Intervention is just you're tugging at their emotions to get a, a behavioristic change. Not enough. But it's great for families. Don't get me wrong. Families feel great because they got everything off their chest. But for the, for the person struggling, not so much. Now, to answer your question, say mom is finally willing to get help. She goes, hey, Melissa, she calls you up. And that's why don't ever stop praying for your mother. Is your church praying for your mom? All of them. Be honest. I, I worked with a mega church pastor's kid and he came to on family day and he said, I'll do whatever it takes to help my son. So I said, great. How big is your church? 6,000 people. And in my head, I'm like, that's 6,000 saints that's going to be praying for his son. And I said, what you need to do on Sundays, you need to go up in front of your church at the end of the service and say, my son is in treatment. And I need you to pray for him. And you know what he told me? I can't do that. The best thing you can do is prayer. Pray without ceasing. Put on the full armor of God on your your mother every single morning when you wake up. Because you know if the full armor of God is on the front, right? It's all tools to walk forward. There's no butt plate of fear. <clears throat> There's no back plate of doubt. <clears throat> it's all to walk victoriously forward. Put on the full armor of God on your mom. Pray for your mom. Have the courage to, to tell your church body... My mom is going to die unless she gets help that she needs. And I'm, I'm not judging you, Melissa, right? It's hard. You know, when I went to treatment, my parents said, what are we supposed to tell everyone? <laughs> I told them, you tell them I'm, I'm at rehab because I'm a drug addict and I need help. So I had every single member of my church praying for me. And I truly believe that's the only reason why I'm alive today. Because I wasn't ashamed to say, I'm, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need Jesus. Right? So pray. So once, so if a loved one or someone you're working with is like, hey, I need help. Number one is you detox. And I'm also going to put dollar amounts with everything because let, let's just be honest, y'all. You need money. That's just the world we live in. I don't care how good of insurance you have. Not all insurance is covered. But number one is detox. Necessity for those who, who have alcohol or benzodiazepine addictions okay and who's my who's my lead pastors here i'm going to pick on you for a minute any lead pastors here associate pastors my lead pastor your name sir hey a lawyer shirt i like you what, what's your name steve. steve steve if you have a church member who says hey we need to send fred to detox use your benevolence fund to help them out find a way to, to get them the detox they need because their, their lives are at risk sorry Steve Steve is never going to put his hand up again to talk to me because I just <laughs> called him out but Steve if I ever hear that your, your church member came to you because you need a detox and you told them no I'll be very disappointed because I've told you the consequence of what happens okay so number one is detox detox is going to be about three to five days depending on what they're on now detox roughly runs between $250 to $600 a day I was like, what? Yeah, $250 to $600 a day. There are some who need to spend longer in detox. My roommate, um, when I ran the sober living home, he was in detox for 18 days. Do the math. It's a lot of money. 
Yes, sir. How many times? Same person. Same person. What do you think I'm going to say? Yeah, listen to what I'm saying. For detox, I'll keep sending them. Treatment, no. When is helping hurting? I'm not going to send them. To, I'm not going to pay for treatment all the time. I'm going to pay for the detox all the time because if the dead serious about quitting, now you got to understand. I'm saying detox for alcohol and benzodiazepines. Okay, those, two. those two, heroin. You better open up your your couch and they're going to poop and puke everywhere, and they're going to be miserable. Our issue is meth. meth. Yeah, they don't need detox, right? Meth is they're going to stay up for about three weeks. Even coming off of meth, they're going to stay up for a long time. Now. I critiqued Alcoholics Anonymous heavily in my dissertation. But I'm going to... You, you you brought me down this rabbit trail, Steve, so here we go. Okay, here's that rabbit trail we're going to go down. And I want everyone to be brutally honest with me. You have a church member who's struggling with addictions. How many of you have a 24-hour hotline that if they call to say they want to pick up a drink or a drug, that you have a 24-hour hotline that will try to talk them out of doing it? Anyone here? And I know you don't because no church has it. Guess who does? Alcoholics Anonymous. How many of you have a church where if someone comes to your Sunday or your Wednesday night meeting, right, and they say, "Hey, hey, Pastor Steve, I need a place to detox. I got kicked out of my house. I have nowhere to go. I'm going to sleep on the, a park bench." And you, you tell everyone at that meeting on Wednesday night, "Hey, we have Fred." He needs a place to detox on the couch for a couple days. How many of you have church members that will put them on a couch for three to five days, paying zero money to detox on their couch? Anyone here? Would we? Good. One. Two. Three. Awesome. Hey, send me your information because I might send people your way. I'm, I'm dead serious. But I'll tell you who, who has members of their meetings every single day of the week. That will put someone on their couch. Alcoholics Anonymous. Last question. Everyone needs a program, materials, right? A program that we're going to have books to give away or books to buy. How many of you have a church that will give away a $30 book for free to someone who doesn't have money? Good, a little bit more hands. But I'll tell you who gives it away for free every single time. Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous is doing the role of the church because we failed in that area. We have failed, we have abdicated soul care to an organization that doesn't point people to Jesus. They point them to a quote-unquote higher power. But the one thing, and, and this, this kills me, you guys, the fact that I wrote my dissertation proving why Alcoholics Anonymous is not biblical, but if I get a phone call from someone in North Dakota and I say, do you have a church that's going to care for you? And they say, no. Guess where I'm going to send them? Alcoholics Anonymous. Not because I want to, but because I can't counsel a dead person. I, I, I can't work with someone who's dead. Now, if you're upset that I'm going to send someone to AA, even because I wrote my dissertation on it, then I sure as heck hope that you start to care for the broken.
It cannot just be a theoretical, we're going to care for the broken, we're going to work with those who no one else wants to work with. We have to work with them. Now some of you have, have young kids, right? And I get that. I've always opened up my home to, you know, I've run free detoxes and free rehabs out of my seminary housing. I got in trouble for that, by the way. You're not supposed to let people stay for three months at a time. Um, oops, you know, that ask for forgiveness, not permission thing. That was me. But it shifted once I had my son, James. James is three. I can't do that anymore. Right? I, I got to take care of my son. But that doesn't mean I won't help others who 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 will take someone into their home. You want me to work with them for thir- for three months? Bring it. They can shadow me at school. What are they going to do? Fire me for discipling someone? You got to care for the broken, right? Got to care. For- so to answer your question, detox from alcohol and benzos all day long. Detox from meth, they're going to suffer, and they can suffer on your couch. Or someone's couch, right? Um, that, that's my suggestion. So number one is detox. Number two is what we call treat, quote unquote treatment. Now I, I'm not a fan of that term. That's the reality of things. But treatment can look at many, treatment looks, can look like many different things, right? So you have inpatient treatment where they disappear for 30, 60, 90 days. Pretty costly. I think the cheapest treatment option I heard is $600. That's the cheapest one. The treatment center that I went to was $30,000 a month. My parents aren't rich. They cashed in all of their um, retirement for me. Right? And that's how much they, they cared. I'm not saying that people who don't afford, can't afford 30 don't care. That's just what they could afford. There's other more expensive options out there, and they just told me we can't afford that. This is what we can afford. So treatment, what I mean by treatment is they need to stop being a drug addict. Treatment can look like in-person. Treatment can look like an IOP. So IOP is intensive outpatient where they're, they're staying at home or sober living home and then they're coming to quote unquote treatment. And you're like, it sounds like you're pushing the professional model. Well, no, I'm not. Treatment can also be a church who says for the next year, we are going to disciple you every single day. And I know it's possible because while I went to quote-unquote treatment for two months, when I came back from California back to Hawaii, I had three pastors, Kaala Souza, David Giomi, and Pastor Robert Miller. And every day for a year, they discipled me. Every day for a year. And it was two separate churches. See, here's the thing. You do this, unless you're like at a mega church that has tons of resources, you're going to have to pull resources together. That's just the reality of things, right? Mondays, Mondays I went to um, Kala Souza's house, Pastor Kala Souza. Kala Souza didn't know me. I actually went to his church because my, the other pastor, David Giomi, was my former bartender. And when I got sober, crazy, yeah. He got sober three years before me. And David was a pastor at this church. And he said, once you come back from treatment, you're going to come to my church. And Kala met me day one. He heard my story. And he was like, I'm going to disciple this young man. He didn't know me from anyone. He didn't know me from anyone. And what Kala did was like, do you like CrossFit? I'm like, what's CrossFit? This is 2007 before it's everywhere, right? I was like, sure, I'll do, I'll work out. I'm single. I need to look good. So I'll work out. That was my whole reason for wanting to work out. So I went to Kala's house on Mondays and we worked out. 
I went to work, then I went to his house to do CrossFit. And like, how is that discipleship? Well, because before every workout, he prayed. We talked about a scripture. And after we worked out, we talked about Jesus. No set plan, no set program. He just talked to me about Jesus. On Tuesdays, I went to work during the day. And then at night, I went to David Giomi's martial arts gym, Christian martial arts. Don't freak out. We weren't doing anything funky, right? It was a Christian martial arts. What do we start every class with? We started a class with prayer. We started a class with scripture. And after martial arts, a bunch of us went out to go have dinner together. And what do we talk about at dinner? Jesus. Wednesday mornings at, at 9 o'clock in the morning, I went to Pastor Robert's office, and we did an intensive Bible study for a year every single Wednesday. 9 o'clock in the morning, we talked about Jesus. The condition for me being part of Dave's martial arts group was he had a Wednesday night Bible study that I was required to go to. He said, if you miss, I'm choking you out at the next session, and you're also going to start paying. So what did I do Wednesday nights? I went to this Bible study, and we talked about Jesus. You're starting to see a theme here, y'all? Thursdays was martial arts again with Dave. Three hours of martial arts, three hours of being kicked in the head and choked out and all kinds of fun stuff. But we started with prayer, talked about scripture, we talked about Jesus after. On Fridays, I went to Kaala's house. Fridays, I worked half days. Fridays, as soon as I finished work, about 12, drove out to Kaala's house. We did CrossFit. We prayed. We read scripture. We talked about Jesus. Friday nights, I did martial arts. You're also seeing a theme. My time was spent doing what? My Jesus. My, but my time wasn't spent with my old friends. My time wasn't spent doing old things or going to old places. My, my David Carter was a total immersion into a whole new lifestyle. And they provided me this lifestyle that brought God praise, glory, and honor. All right, Friday night, martial arts. Talked about Jesus. Then we went to dinner after. We talked about Jesus. Saturday, I'd go to Kala's house at about 1. We'd do CrossFit. we barbecued. We'd watch UFC. In, in Hawaii, UFC is like super early. Not 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. We'd um, do CrossFit, eat dinner, barbecue it up, watch UFC, talk about Jesus. And then Sunday, I'd go to church. And Sunday afternoon, I went to Kala's house to do CrossFit. Those three men saved my life. They saved my life because they saw value in sacrificing the worst four-letter word God ever created, and that is time. People will give you money. People will give you buildings. But the moment you ask people for their time, oh, I don't got that. Why? Because you can't make more time. You can't buy more time. For those of us with whiter hair or no hair, we wish we could go back in time. Maybe get 15 minutes with a grandfather that's no longer here. We can't get back time. But when you're working in this ministry, that's what it's going to take is your time to say you have value. You matter. So treatment doesn't necessarily always need to be inpatient. doesn't have to be an IOP. It could just be discipleship. And there's beauty in that. Because treatment, inpatient treatment, costs a lot of money. 
Discipleship is free. Discipleship doesn't cost a dime. Well, for me, it costs money because I buy them food. And I buy them food because a lot of the guys I work with don't have money because they've wasted it all on drugs and alcohol. So they're coming to me without enough money to buy a dinner or a lunch. So you don't know how they pay me? They buy they pay me in prayer. And this is what I mean by they pay me in prayer. I buy you pray. Because the one thing that a lot of these guys, even if they're they're Christians, the one thing that they lack is a, they don't know how to pray. They pray for things because they think God is Santa Claus. And I teach them how to actually pray. Thanking God for who God is. Thanking God for just the basic food on our plate. I had one guy, we'll, we'll call him Fred. Fred didn't know how to pray. Fred was born and raised in a church. Shockingly, he didn't know how to pray. I'm like, how do you not know how to pray? He goes, oh, my dad always prayed. I was like, well, your dad should have taught you how to pray. Anyway, um, so we go out to, we go out to eat. And, and the deal was, I buy you pray. And for six months, Fred's prayer was this. Dear God, thank you for the food. Amen. And I'm like, when are we going to expand this, Fred? Come on. But Fred had to go to Bible studies with me. Fred had to go to church services with me, which means he was hearing pastors pray. He was hearing deacons pray. He was seeing all these people praying correctly. And then one day, before church, we went to this place called Selma's in, in San Clemente, California. It's a pe- deep dish pizza place. Super yummy. I told Fred I was having a bad day. I, I just opened up. That's another beautiful thing that we can do as biblical counselors that the world cannot do. We can be truthful and honest about what's going on in our life with people. So when Kip said I'm having a bad day, I said, oh, Keith taught you well. You can be honest. And I told, I told Fred that I had a bad day and what was going on in my life. And it was Fred's turn to pray for, for dinner. And he said the most beautiful prayer I ever heard. And it wasn't because he was eloquent. It wasn't because he was an orator. It was because he said, Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for John. Thank you for his willingness to work with us who are broken. I don't know how to help him, but I know that he's taught me to pray. Thank you for our food. Amen. You see, when we model for people exactly what they're supposed to do, if you do it well over time, they will get it. But it also depends what are you modeling for them. Are you modeling for them that you're spending time in the Word? Are you modeling for them that you pray? Are you modeling for them that, of being acts of service? And if you say it but you don't do it, guess what they're not going to do? They're not going to do it because they're looking to you to how to live this new life. Now, I know I'm supposed to finish at 7.15. And when... When's the final? We finish at 8.30, is that correct? Option, do you want a 15-minute break or I keep going and we get out 15 minutes early? You want a break? All right, take a break. Oh, let me finish this before I go on a break. Fred is not sober today, though. Fred didn't get it. What I'm trying to share with you guys is you can do everything right. You can do everything right, but if their heart isn't transformed to be like Christ, it's just behavior modification. And you have to hammer home who Jesus is, Christ's character, God's character, the power of prayer, and that you will go through bad times, that you will suffer. Okay, let's take a 15-minute break, and then we'll finish up our lecture.